0: If you have your Bibles, please go go with me to Exodus 20. We're going to be looking at the Sixth Commandment together in verse 13. So we're going to start by reading verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to read verse 13. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, and verse 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall not murder. Friends, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would reveal your heart to us, that you would make your words clear to us. God, that you would help me to speak what is true. Lord, that you would help us to engage our hearts with your word, and to see uh, what you say, how you call us to live, but also how much we need you as we examine our hearts in this. So would you meet us here, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've been with us recently, then you know that we've been going through uh, the entire book of Exodus in a sermon series, and over the past several weeks, we've actually slowed down and we've taken the Ten Commandments and looked at each one, one by one, So last week, we just had this wonderful family worship Sunday together where all the kids stayed in with us for the whole service, and Joel taught us on the fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. Now, this Sunday, as we considered the sixth commandment together, you shall not murder, I tried to say to the guys, hey, that family Sunday went so well, let's do that again. Uh, But for some reason, that topic didn't seem to jive with a family Sunday, so when, we, when you think about it, our culture has what I would call a detached fascination with the topic of murder. Here's what I mean by that. Think about how many true crime shows revolve around murder, or how many decades and spin-offs the TV show "Law and Order" has enjoyed, revolving mainly around made-up murders, right? Murder is often for us a plot device. And oftentimes in real life murder is something that we end up becoming kind of fascinated by at arm's length just a few years ago mary and i watched a tv show that dramatized the oj simpson murder trial that took place in 1994 and 1995 and the show did a really good job of capturing just how much attention this murder trial had on the country but what's crazy is When the trial actually happened i was only seven years old but i can actually remember my parents having the verdict playing on tv that's how much it just captured everyone it was totally abnormal for them to be having that playing during the day if we're honest with ourselves here studying the ten commandments can be difficult in particular the commandment that we do not murder because at a basic level who among us disagrees with this commandment It's so familiar that we can struggle to truly truly recognize how it applies to our own lives. And so we have the tendency to kind of read it and move on without truly considering what it means and how it applies to our lives or our world. But thankfully, God has us parked here today. And what we're going to experience for the next 35 minutes is essentially this. I'm going to take 35 minutes talking about what God says in two words. And we're not going to have enough time to cover it all. Because as we consider this commandment and what it means for us, we are going to get a rich picture of just how precious the lives of all men and women are to God. And we're going to see just how deep the spirit of this commandment goes in revealing our own heart towards others in everyday life. So here's the big picture of what I trust we're going to see today we honor the lord as god by preserving the life of all those made in his image i'm going to say that again we honor the lord as god by preserving the life of all those made in his image and we're going to see this by looking at the commandment in four ways this morning first we're going to look at mankind dignified second we're going to look at murder defined third we're going to look at motives diagnosed and lastly we're going to look at mercy diffused so how do we see all this in the sixth commandment let's start by considering mankind dignified what you believe about a thing determines how you treat it when i was a kid my older brother and i collected sports cards mostly baseball and for the most part we would try to keep them in boxes and in binders and in sheet protectors in hopes of keeping them in good condition so that one day they'd actually be worth something so unfortunately for us tens of thousands of other kids in my generation had the same idea and most if not all of what I collected is worthless and I still keep it in a box no idea why but the one thing I remember that we used to do is we would take cards of players that for whatever reason we didn't like, maybe they were from a rival team, um, and we would do what we called, we would make puzzles out of them. Which was a nice way of saying that we would just rip them up into little pieces, and then later we would just throw them away. So who knows what kind of valuable cards we might have made puzzles out of, simply because we just didn't care. See, what we believe about a thing determines how we treat it. And there are few things that this can be more true of than the value of human life. In the creation myth of the ancient Mesopotamian cultures, humans were created by the god Marduk through the blood of his slain enemy. And according to their myth, humans were placed on earth simply to do menial labor for the gods and provide the gods with food and drink in their temples. We've already discussed in the in exodus how the ancient egyptians viewed pharaoh as essentially a son of a god and it's easy to see how this kind of differentiation between peoples leads to cultures where the value of human life is easily dismissed but what does the bible tell us about human life and how does that inform our view on murder see before we ever get to the sixth commandment in the bible god has already told us much about how he values human life and about how he views murder so consider with me for a moment the creation of man and how we see the thread of murder and violence develop in scripture until we get to exodus 20. so the story of mankind in the bible starts in genesis 1. Where we see in Genesis 1, God created all men and women in his image. Look at it with me. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And if we know the story of the Bible, we know that very quickly mankind falls into sin And we see the introduction of sin into the world quickly lead to the introduction of violence and murder. In Genesis 4, we see Adam and Eve's own son Cain, driven by jealousy and anger, rise up against his own brother and kill him. And later on in the same chapter, we see this legacy of Cain continue through his descendant Lamech, who boasts to his wives of killing a man for wounding him in Genesis 4.23. By the time we get to the age of Noah, in Genesis 6.11, it tells us that mankind is corrupt and, quote, filled with violence. And this is one of the primary charges that leads God to flood the earth. As we continue on in Genesis, by the time we get to the stories of Abraham and Isaac, we see that both of these men feared for their lives because of the beauty of their wives. Both of them lie to different kings about their wives being their sister to protect them there's a lot that can be said about that but for our purposes today one of the things we can say is that it paints a very dark picture of the world that they lived in it was a world that they lived in where they were so worried for their lives because they lived in a world full of kings that would murder to take someone else's wife for their own When we started the book of Exodus, we saw one of the very first things that happened is Pharaoh ordered the murder of all Hebrew males at birth so that he can prevent an uprising among the Hebrews. We see Moses himself in Exodus 2 murder an Egyptian and flee for his life. We could go on. But even as I recount this theme, we need to recognize that God has already made explicit to his people the commit command not to commit murder where right after the flood in Genesis 9 verse 6 and we have to take careful note of why God commands this it says this in Genesis 9 6 whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image So we see that being made in God's image determines the value of every human life, and therefore, the gravity of murder. And the key piece of this that we need to see is how God upholds the dignity of all human life. In contrast to the cultures around them, where only the king was considered to be in the image of God— Yahweh redefines the dignity of man for his people by connecting every single man and woman to his own image. And in doing so, he upholds the value of all human life, regardless of health, age, race, mental capacity, disability, status, you name it. What does this tell us about how we think about this commandment, you shall not murder? It tells us that as God's people, we are supposed to uphold the dignity of all human life. One of the implications of this is that it mirrors God's heart when we care for and protect the lives of the vulnerable. When we care for and advocate for the unborn, the impoverished, the orphan, the disabled, the infirm, the elderly, we are honoring the Lord when we do this. We are reflecting His heart for people He has made in His image. God wants us to be people that love the vulnerable like God does and sees them through the lens of His image. And even as I speak of this, it's important to make it clear that this has implications for our heart in how we think through protecting the lives of the unborn in particular. As we study the book of Exodus, we're going to soon come to a passage in Exodus 21 verses 23 through 25, where there's specific attention given to the harm of an unborn child. When it comes to this subject in scripture, there seems to be clear indications that the Bible sees the unborn as human beings created in the image of God. Two verses to argue for this for us this morning. The first is Psalm 139, verses 13 and 16. The psalmist says this For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So here, the psalmist is boldly stating that he was formed in his mother's womb by God and seen and known by God even before he was born. The second continues on this theme Jeremiah 1 verses four and five Jeremiah says this now the word of the Lord came to me saying before I formed you in the womb I knew you and before you were born I consecrated you I appointed you as a prophet to the nations now as I speak about these topics I recognize that the cultural and political landscape that we live in make this issue very provoking to say the least are some among us that are so fatigued about the debate and the prevalence of what they perceive the church to be beating this drum that they we can easily become just inoculated to it And for some of us we can't hear this topic talked about in church without interpreting it as a statement about political parties or political policies but friends we need to push through the fog to get to the clarity that scripture provides here And the implications of thou shalt not murder certainly call us to recognize that abortion is just that. And this must start as a statement of conviction for us rather than a political posture. It doesn't have to do with what your political party registration says. We all have to give prayerful consideration to how we apply this and how to think through the difficult questions this topic can bring up, but we must prayerfully engage our hearts with God's word and be shaped by his word here first and foremost. Now, before I move on from this, I want to make sure that everyone is hearing my heart here. So maybe you came in today and you're wrestling with your own convictions in this area, or you're worried that your attitudes or actions when it comes to abortion will subject you to shame by the people here, or maybe you're feeling shame over your own decisions that you yourself have made. Please know our love for you here. And more importantly, please know Jesus' love for you. We are all with you in our need for the love and mercy of Jesus. And please keep listening. There is so much grace to be shared as we continue so as we move on to the next point we have seen the dignity of human life in the eyes of God and now we can look specifically at the sixth, sixth commandment and see what it actually means for us so look at let's look at murder defined what is the taking of the life of another human being justified how do we answer this question and how do we determine what is murder and what is not Ethics courses in college for decades have sought to stress this dilemma upon us. They've sought to gray the lines between what is right and what is wrong here. But what I want to propose is that just as importantly, we need to ask who defines murder? When it comes to this commandment, we have the privilege to consider what God Himself has to say on the subject. And where we need to start is by recognizing the simplicity of the command itself most translations of the bible use four words to capture this commandment you shall not murder but in reality the original hebrew uses only two words don't kill or no murder so let's slow down for a second and examine these two words and their significance first consider the word don't or no. Notice here that there is no qualification in respect to who the person is. Where the ancient world would have tended to place a high value on some lives, like the life of a ruler, and a low value on others, like the life of a slave, God gives no such qualifications for this commandment. At its face, this is an unqualified restriction that encapsulates all people. Second, consider this word kill or murder the specific hebrew word here is a bit tricky because on the one hand it implies more than murder and yet less than a universal restriction on killing you might see in your bible a footnote on this verse that says the hebrew word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence so as we explore this We're going to see how it says something about the seriousness of considering other people in God's commandment here. There's a carefulness and care for the lives of others that's encapsulated in this commandment and in its restrictions. So as we explore this commandment and its meaning, we actually have a lot of help because the first five books of the Bible lay out for us and elaborate on what is and is not punishable under this commandment. So it's going to help us to look at some of those passages together to see first what is not considered murder. And then afterwards, we're going to look at what is considered murder. But first, what is not considered murder under this commandment? The first thing that seems to not be considered murder here is killing someone in a situation of self-defense. So Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3 say, uh, lay out for us a scenario in which self-defense seems to be allowable if there's not a reasonable way to avoid it. It says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. (coughs) notice here that in this first scenario we have a thief breaking in at night and in this case self-defense is warranted but if that same thief is breaking in during the day and presumably can easily be identified and brought to justice in another way then this is considered a situation where a violent act of self-defense is not warranted the implication here seems to be if there is any way to avoid killing it should be taken The second thing that's not considered murder here seems to be killing someone as an execution of sentencing in circumstances where capital punishment is prescribed by God. So you can see a list of circumstances like this by looking at Exodus 21. The third thing that is not considered murder here seems to be killing during battle and war in situations where God seems to be allowing for it or commanding it it's clear as you read the old testament that there were times where god instructed the israelites to go to war and even to take the lives of others this can be a very uncomfortable category for people and one that deserves fuller treatment than i'm able to give today but if this is a category that you be helped by more biblical clarity any one of the pastors here would be happy to talk further about that with you for our purposes today I want to be careful not to say more than what scripture says, particularly about these last two categories. So what we've just said is that in the nation of Israel at a specific point in history, particularly before Jesus came to earth and during the time where the people of Israel were their own nation, both capital punishment and war were at times allowed and even commanded by God. How does this relate to how we view capital punishment in our current day or how we view war? Do these commandments justify or even necessitate that we be okay with or even endorse these things in the United States of America? It's actually important to recognize here that there are differing perspectives that Christians have to this very question. And many with good biblical arguments for what they believe in their perspective. And what we need to do is we need to carefully and prayerfully study all of Scripture as it relates to this topic and recognize that while the principles laid out for us here teach us about God and his holiness, we have to be careful about how we apply the practices of these things on this side of the cross. We do not relate to the civil law in the Old Testament in the same way the Israelites were called to. And while the new testament on the one hand does affirm the execution of justice by the state in punishing evildoers as we see in romans 13 the overarching theme of how we personally relate to others is that we would love even our enemies and pray for those that persecute us as we see in matthew 5 verses 38 through 48. we need to recognize that jesus has radically transformed our view of how we relate to others, even those that harm us. There's so much more that can be said here, but we're limited in our time, so I need to move on. So, what is defined as murder in the Old Testament? Again, Exodus 21 helpfully lays out for us many circumstances in which um, what it happens is considered unlawful killing. So the most obvious is killing people with the intent or out of rage so exodus 21 14 condemns the one who willfully attacks another person to kill him by cunning exodus 21 18 and 19 condemns killing as a result of a quarrel and this really touches not only on the seriousness of taking someone's life but on the seriousness of rage and losing control in conflict we're going to talk about this more later Exodus 21 verses 22 and 25 condemns unintentionally killing an unborn child as the result of conflict. It lays out this situation for us where two men are quarreling and in their quarrel unintentionally hurt a pregnant woman in such a way that the baby ends up being harmed. The language of these verses make it clear that any harm to the unborn child in this situation is punishable commensurate with that harm done. So, if the baby dies in this scenario the person that caused this death would be killed it's important to point out that this is the passage where the concept of eye for eye tooth for tooth is introduced in scripture exodus 21 verses 28 and 29 condemn killing another unintentionally by our own negligence let's look at these verses briefly it says when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. We need to recognize this isn't the only time that the category of negligence or carelessness is addressed as it comes to this commandment. Another passage addresses a situation where harm is caused by someone digging a pit and then leaving it there without it being covered. And Deuteronomy 22.8 commands the Israelites to put a parapet or a guardrail on their roof when they build it to prevent them from blood guilt if someone were to fall off of their roof and die. So, at this point, it can be really easy to get lost in the weeds. We might hear all these strange details laid out and feel like God is being extra. Very oddly specific. And we might wonder, why all the details here? Like, why does God care so much about why a, how a roof is built? But the idea here is this. The preciousness of human life is so great to God that he is very specific about how we relate to life. There is no death of a human being that is insignificant to God. Even on the outset, the commandment does not just prohibit wrathful killing, but also prohibits our own careless negligence. God's law calls us to exhibit such a carefulness about protecting human life that we would consider other people's protection even when we're digging a pit in our backyard. Listen, human life matters to God. Your life matters to God. This is not a situation where we step back and we look at all these rules and we think, oh, here's more minutia from God maybe you're here today and you're thinking that that's how god relates to you just a bunch of burdens and rules that just weigh me down but see the heart behind this commandment see our own need for it as we tend to walk through our lives in selfishness and carelessness of other people that's not god's heart for you god knows you and cares about you you are not forgotten by god your life matters to god so what are we supposed to do with all this i think the biggest takeaway for us is to recognize something extremely important we need to recognize who defines when taking a life isn't and is and isn't justified who does god does not us god is the one who dictates what crimes are punishable by death god is the one who determines when warfare is necessary and when it is not yes it's right for us to carefully consider how these commandments apply to our civil society today but what we can't do is make up categories for ourselves for when these things are and are not okay an application for this commandment for us is this we need to recognize that we do not have the right to decide who lives and who dies not for ourselves and not for others we have to submit to god's authority over the giving and taking of life friends as we move ahead we would do well to ask how does the new testament address or deepen our understanding of the dignity of man and these restrictions that we see in the sixth commandment and what, we, what we're going to see as we look at the New Testament is that the New Testament doesn't just focus on our actions, but it also exposes our hearts in these areas. So look at, let's look at that with motives diagnosed. Up to this point, it might be easy to think, okay, this is all good, helpful. I didn't realize there was so much here, but how does this really relate to me? I'm not planning on murdering anyone right now. So how do I apply these things? See, it's easy to view these commandments as a problem out there for other people. But how do we think through how this applies to our day-to-day lives? And thankfully here, Jesus actually has a lot to say about what this commandment reveals about our hearts. In Matthew 22, verses 37 and 40, Jesus affirms that this commandment isn't simply about what we do not do or how we do not harm others. But positively, this commandment can be summed up within the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is not just about avoiding harm, but it's about doing good to those around us. And along these lines, we see in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus brings a broader understanding of our heart and the heart of the sixth commandment in our own attitudes and actions towards others. So let's look at Matthew 5, Verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Friends, in effect, Jesus is showing us That a heart of sinful anger towards someone else breaks the spirit of this sixth commandment. See, in the same way that we ought to avoid lashing out in rage, we ought to guard ourselves against rage in our hearts. Where we ought to be careful not to injure others through our negligence or carelessness, we also ought to recognize the gravity of careless insults and negligence with our words. These warnings cause us to step back and think about how the way we think about and treat others in our sin can show disrespect to the God-given dignity in other people. And this is consistent with what James says in James 3.9, where he rebukes us for cursing those made in the likeness of God. And friends, Jesus doesn't stop there. Verses 23 through 26 connect us to keeping these commandments and how we're called to quickly pursue reconciliation. He lays out two scenarios for us. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus says that if you're offering your gift before the altar and remember there that your brother has something against you, you're supposed to stop and go and be reconciled to your brother first before going and making your offering. The spirit of what is being said here is reminiscent of the call for us as a church to unity and reconciliation as we take communion together in church. But then it goes on in verses 25 and 26 to lay out a scenario where a friend or a brother is taking you to court for an offense. And Jesus exhorts us there to come to terms with our brother even on our way to court and avoid the legal process in the dispute both of these illustrations serve for us as an exhortation of the importance of reconciliation and a warning against the repercussions of unresolved conflict they call us to silence wrath by pursuing peace they call us not only to fight against anger in our own hearts but to do what we can to remove the temptation to anger and bitterness in others. Jesus then goes on to address our hearts in situations where we're tempted towards revenge. Matthew 5 verses 43 and 48 call us to adopt the heart of God by loving our enemy and praying for those who do us harm. They call us to adopt the actions that God himself does and do good to all people not just those who do good to us what are the implications here for us as i've been thinking about this myself i realized just how easy it is for me to justify my anger in a moment by focusing on the other person friends all too often i will lash out with impatience or annoyance or harsh words with my kids because they made me upset I'll be upset with my wife, Mary, for ways that I perceive she hurt me. Notice that I said perceive. And I'll be slow to reconcile or admit my own sin in those areas. I'll blame stressful circumstances instead of recognizing that these are just incidents of temptation and that my own sinful heart is just using those temptations as an excuse to sin. Friend, are you like me in this? Do you find it easy to self-justify sinful anger or to become reactive in reconciliation instead of proactive or to excuse bitterness towards others because of what they did? Is that the standard that we're called to be seeking? Is that what Jesus did for us? Thank the Lord it is not. Friends, we need to see that this commandment is not for someone else. It is for us. It is for our attitudes and actions towards others. It is for revealing our own hearts and our need. Consider Jesus' words for us in Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Friends, when we see our hearts rightly, we see that there is not a single one of us that is innocent under jesus standard here that we all fall short of the spirit of keeping this commandment and every single one of us should stand condemned before god rightly by breaking this one commandment alone so what do we do with this let's consider this in our last point together mercy diffused The first thing we need to do with this is recognize that what we're seeing here is the very picture of mankind that paul sets forth for us in titus 3. titus 3:3 3, 3 says for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another but what happened when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the holy spirit whom he poured out on us richly through jesus christ our savior So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, think about what this says about what we all once were. We were all once willing participants in this world of murder. We were no better off than during the time of Cain and Lamech and Abraham and Moses. But what made the difference... The intervening salvation of God through the sending of Jesus Christ. Through the grace and mercy poured out by Jesus. How did God diffuse his mercy to mankind? Through the death of Jesus. God's mercy was diffused to murderous sinners through the murder of God. Through the murder of the King of Peace he brought peace by shedding his blood instead of ours as we consider this do you remember the exchange that took place at the crucifixion when an insurrectionist and a murderer named barabbas was set free in the place of jesus you can read about this in luke 23 18 through 25 in jesus condemnation he quite literally took the place of a murderer what a picture of this beautiful exchange friends here's what the cross did the cross diffused mercy to wrathful sinners it transformed hearts of anger through the love of the king of peace and ultimately it is through christ's death that eternal peace will be brought to the earth friends he will end all wars he will bring all justice to pass and he will right every wrong what an incredible thing that we get to look forward to that day instead of tremble at the judgment that it could mean for us where do these words leave you today maybe these words left you convicted of your own sin in anger and in bitterness towards others Maybe you're feeling condemnation over your past attitudes or actions. Or maybe you're here and you've realized that you have seriously done damage to someone else through your own anger or through your own withholding of reconciliation. Maybe you're here and you've had an abortion or encouraged someone else to have an abortion and you're feeling shame or condemnation over past decisions. Friends, wherever you are this morning, please hear this there is hope for you today he gave us his law so that we could see our need for his mercy and grace his grace is freely offered to us through the shedding of the blood of jesus friend if you're in christ this morning let your conviction turn to confession let your condemnation be silenced by his blood hear his words of forgiveness spoken over your condemnation this morning. There is no condemnation left at the foot of the cross. Jesus dealt with all of your sin at the foot of the cross. He paid the price. He washes you clean and makes you new. So friends, let us seek that mercy this morning. Let us cling to that hope. And let us believe by faith that he does extend grace even to wrathful sinners like us. Friends, let's pray.